Welcome to the holiday edition of the Interconnections podcast. I'm your host, John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. Joining me today from the team is uh, Ken Behan, Andrew Burns, and Jillian Fisher. Thanks for coming on the program today, guys. Uh, we're in a uh, little bit of a departure from our format. We're going to just do kind of an internal, uh, you know, campfire chat around what's been going on in 2021 and how this is going to reflect on 2022. Um, before we move forward, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners that our first big event in 2022 is coming up pretty soon, the Community Solar Development and Finance Forum. Uh, this virtual webinar is slated for February 1st and is being sponsored by Nautilus Solar, Greenbacker Capital, Fundamental Renewables, and Oya Solar also speaking at the forum is speakers from NextAmp, Generate Capital, EDPR, and Fifth Third Bank. We hope you can join us. Uh, more information can be found on newprojectmedia.com. So on with today's program, um, there's only too many themes we can address here, but we'll try and get to them in a good solid half hour format. Um, you know, for me, the landscape shifted seismically in 2021 as the back half of the year was dominated by a series of utility-scale developers turning to institutional capital. And to cap off the year, Royal Dutch Shell's energy transition arm, Shell New Energies, completed the buyout of Savion um, on December 17th. And that wasn't the end, because just uh, yesterday, uh, AES announced the buyout of Community Energy Solar as perhaps a harbinger of the so-called middle market of, de of developers that might be next in terms of an M&A candidate heading into 2022. The secret behind the institutional trade became transparent early on. Institutional money was going to allow developers to not only scale their, their pipeline to meet accelerated demand for renewable resources, but they were also bringing in asset management capability so the developer can then own and operate projects once they go operational, essentially recreating the independent power producer model uh, that was popular uh, two decades ago. As for Shell, it's been said that they not only won a bidding war for the Kansas City, Missouri-based Savion, but it was also a continuation of its clean tech goals and away from its historical roots of being big oil, as it's now invested in the likes of Silicon Ranch in the US but other renewable developers and technology developers, such as Sonen, a smart energy storage company in Germany. So on a project level, um, there was a lot um, um, in terms of what could help up any scaled up pipeline efforts. Um, whether it hinges on the success of the Build Back Better Act or not is up for debate, um, but it's certainly going to be a help uh, to any project developer in the space. Um, if it passes in, in its current form, aside from the comments made by uh, Senator Manchin over the weekend, uh, it'll extend the ITC tax out through 2027, reinstate the PDTC tax for solar, expand the definition for the ITC tax to allow standalone storage to be included under the definition. Uh, previously, it had to be co-located uh, and incentivize further energy transition technologies, such as biomass. Uh, carbon capture and green hydrogen. Still, um, what most people cite as among the key benefits for the act is the ability to sub in direct pay for tax equity 
in the project finance ecosystem. So what's next for 2022 is um, a lot. But Ken, I thought I'd uh, get you to chime in here first for your observations, and then uh, perhaps we'll get into a couple of different subcategories that have been on the rise. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you. I think 2021 to me was really that inflection point for the industry where, you know, prior to um, to a lot of the M&A activity that we saw this year, you know, there was still this mindset around just capital raising for developers and making sure that they were able to access sufficient capital in order to just keep, to keep their pipeline growth um, happening. I think this year we saw a lot of those corporate M&A transactions really start to, to bring in you know, large infrastructure um, investors, large private equity firms, um, you know, and, and other strategics too. So it seems like you know, the industry is squarely of interest um, from, from across different buyer types. Um, I, I thought some of the, the more interesting transactions actually on the M&A front were um, in the storage space. So, you know, key capture being acquired by SKENS, um, Apollo acquiring a 50% stake in broad reach. I mean, I think these are the types of transactions where I'm pretty interested in seeing how they, they kind of um, grow into 2022 and beyond because, you know, when, when we sat down to do a little bit of prep for this for this call, um, I came across these uh, numbers from BNEF that they released um, in November, and basically, you know, it was their energy storage forecast for 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 the next decade, and they basically said that um, they're estimating 358 gigawatts of new energy storage being brought on by 2030, and that's a 20% 20x increase from what we had online at the end of 2020. So, you know, over the next 10 years, you're, you're gonna see a massive explosion of energy storage um, growth. And, you know, where they thought, and those are global numbers, but where they thought most of that um, growth is gonna be represented, was US and China. So you can really kind of see why not just domestic investors are interested in getting footholds into um, developers in, in the energy storage space here, but also international players, um, which just means, you know, larger pools of capital, larger valuations, that kind of thing. So, so that, that to me is, is like, you know, I think that's a really strong growth area for us to look at for next year and beyond just, just based on the overall forecast of the amount of, development that's going to be going on in energy storage. Great. Um, thanks for that, Ken. And uh, as usual, a great transition to my next topic, which is going to be um, the rise of uh, standalone energy storage. Um, so Jillian, you've um, already gone a, a done a, a number of stories on the topic. And, um, you know, I certainly wanted to get your observations about um, its rise as a uh, as an asset class um, for for this year and to twenty in the, on until twenty twenty two. So yeah. uh, go for it. Uh, I mean, one of the big places we're seeing with energy storage is uh, in California, and that's in large part um, born out of necessity with their grid emergencies um, that are coming out of the the heat they're seeing in the summers. Uh, they, they saw that they needed more grid capacity and energy storage, uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, where they saw rotating outages, they, uh, and they're concerned about 
upcoming summers that are going to put stress on the grid and lead to serious grid congestion issues uh, at the inter- interstate transfer points. Um, and so to get ahead of this, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom made an emergency proclamation in July to expedite clean en- energy projects to combat climate change. And the California Public Utility Commission uh, has already been looking and planning for the next few summers. Um, Pete Scala told us in an interview for one of the stories we did on this uh, that they they have uh, ordered a huge amount of clean energy procurement uh, in the neighborhood of 3,300 megawatts, um, which began to go online in 2020 and will continue to go online in the next few summers. They've also ordered a combined 14,800 megawatts of new electricity resources to come online between this year and 2026. And in June ordered uh, an additional 11,500 megawatts and all new resources. Uh, Here in December, they ordered um, energy storage microgrids um, and is calling for utilities to procure resources to increase grid reliability. The CPUC specifically called for four new energy storage microgrid projects for the San Diego Gas and Electric uh, Utility for 160 megawatt hours to fill electricity shortfalls and also to help with the state's grid reliability uh, during peak hours in the summer is the San Vicente Storage Project, um, which is supposed to go online by 2030, and that's about 500 megawatts. But we're also seeing uh, an increase uh, in energy storage just with uh, electric vehicles. At the Energy Storage Association conference earlier this month, uh, they talked about EV charging infrastructure as one of the big uh, takeaways. And they said that an anticipated 600 million EVs will be on the road by 2040 uh, and that there is a lack of infrastructure to support them. And to address it, uh, they are increasing in commercial activity to build that infrastructure. Um, In California, the California Energy Commission is handing out grants for energy storage. And there's recently passed uh, the federal infrastructure bill for the 7.5 billion earmarked for EV infrastructure. And uh, at the conference, it was also pointed out um, that there is a big ramp up of demand for grid infrastructure on the utility side to support uh, the type of charging that transit agencies and truck facilities are going to need. Uh, the complaint is that it's just not happening fast enough. It's it's right. It's slow right now. And so a lot of work is being done to change uh Uh, storage options for EVs, like mobile battery storage paired with that, and paired with EVs that would benefit both the EV infrastructure and grid security. Um, And also they spoke about uh, the demand for long duration, how that's increasing, and that we're going to see more capacity procurements coming uh, with RFPs specifically looking for bids in solar and storage, um, specifying the desire to see an eight hour storage capacity or capability. And uh, we're also seeing um, with Core Power, uh, the first US owned lithium ion battery manufacturing facility being built in Arizona. And that will build batteries for the energy storage and EV sectors. 
uh, which will bypass some of the, the global supply chain issues that we're seeing. But on all, the demand is there and technology is improving to meet it. Uh, the, there is a consensus that we will see more of it soon, um, especially paired with other renewable energy projects. Great, um, thanks for that. Um, and that goes back to Ken's point about all this institutional money um, parking itself uh, and ready to deploy into to these different sort of stratas of, of energy storage, whether it be uh, ERCOT sorely in need of storage, you know, as inter intermittency measures to combat things like, you know, a polar vortex, uh, but in California, is that going that as well? And then on into EV charging as a major new user of energy. Uh, and this will probably spread to, this is also applies to data centers as well. So um, there's a lot of, of money now looking to support uh, that particular type of industry. Um, another industry too, which is um, already received a lot of support because it started in Europe, was offshore wind. Uh, Andrew's been covering the space for us. Um, and the last uh, two months alone has probably made the year uh, with Vineyard Wind reaching financial close. Uh, and then Maryland and Massachusetts awarding a different new set of licenses for offshore winds uh, to get built in the next decade or so. Um, so Andrew, uh, why don't you sort of walk us through um, what you've seen and reported on? Yeah, John, happy to do it. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, the, the last couple months in particular for offshore wind has just been uh, really impressive. And I think it's probably indicative of what we're going to see moving into 2022. Um, you know, companies like Orsted and Avangrid, EDP, EDF, uh, and U.S. Wind, they're all leading the charge. Um, more projects are, are being contracted. Um, you mentioned some of the major ones over the uh, last few days. I mean, the, the year was capped off with huge contracts. Orsted's Skipjack Wind in Maryland, that was a knockdown drag out uh, to, to get that contract awarded. And then um, over in Massachusetts, you had Avangrid's Commonwealth Wind. I mean, that's a 1.2 gigawatt project. Um, and uh, of course, uh, EDP and, and Inge's uh, Shell Mayflower Wind. Um, that's also going to be a, a significant project there in Massachusetts. Um, you, you also mentioned um, uh, Vineyard Wind. Um, that's an Avangrid project with CIP. They reached, uh, they're the first project to, to reach financial close. It was a $2.3 billion financing. Um, I would expect to see some, some more of those uh, moving into 2022. Um, yeah, the Biden administration has the goal of, of reaching 30 gigawatts deployed by 2030. So um, that still seems like a, a long amount of time. You know, we've got nine years to to meet that goal. But, you know, that right there is higher than the UK's current capacity of just over 24 gigawatts. So there's still an, a monumental amount of uh, infrastructure and investment that, that needs to take place uh, for us to reach that goal. Um, you now, I was having a conversation uh, a few weeks ago with CARP Strategies, um, and, and they estimate that it's going to require about 100 billion dollars of investment um, over over the next 10 years to, to reach that goal. So it's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, how we you know, go about achieving that. Uh, I would, like I mentioned before, I would expect more financing and, and new contracts as well in 2022. Um, I will note that uh, in a conversation with a PSE and G's a director of offshore wind, that's Kate Gerlach. Um, she, she was cautioning that, that we may actually see some COD slip. Um, you know, they were running into some issues with uh, federal permitting delays. And, and of course, you know, everybody's experiencing supply chain issues. 
Um, but there are some some pretty huge uh, kind of next frontiers that that I want to highlight as I think a lot of eyes are going to be going into these areas uh, moving into the next year. Uh, the biggest one is the New York Bight. Um, this is a, a wind energy area as defined by BOEM off the coast of New York. This is represents about 10 to 15 gigawatts of capacity opportunities. Um, you know, the National Grid Utility, they're working, they've contracted with RWE and they're kind of working on trying to secure one of those, uh, you know, a leasing area within that WEA. Um, and then they want to get a project off the ground there that would support New York. Um, but there's going to be a lot of other companies and, and firms looking to, uh, to get in on that. Um, other areas that I'm looking at include uh, a wind energy area off the coast of Maine. Um, and then also uh, down in the Carolinas, uh, there's, there's about five or six between those two areas that are, are going to be coming online pretty soon. And, you know, those, those uh, areas are also going to be leased off to companies that want to uh, start installing offshore wind. Um, and New Jersey as well. Um, New Jersey has three more major offshore wind RFPs slated uh, before the end of 2027. Um, the first will probably begin next year. Um, it isn't slated to complete until 2023, but I would be surprised if we didn't start seeing uh, some activity there. Uh, they have a goal of reaching 7.5 gigawatts operational by 2035. And then finally, Virginia is also due for another major project. Uh, obviously, we, we know that uh, Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind is progressing there. That's another Orsted project along with the Utility Dominion. Um, that's a 2.6 gigawatt project, but they have another 2.6 gigawatts that they, they need to get uh, moving on. They have that mandated um, by their local legislation by 2034. So we may start seeing some movement in that direction as well. Um, you know, I mentioned it before, but multiple companies are, are moving to initiate a supply chain across the Northeast to kind of combat some of those uh, issues and delays that, that we're seeing. Um, it's almost a, feels like a required component for offshore wind contracts at this point. Um, whenever you start uh, going through the weeds and getting into those documents, you see that they, they often include some sort of, uh, you know, infrastructure component um, in, in those bids. And so um, we're also seeing uh, separate contracts, though, for companies uh, with experience uh, developing a supply chain in the UK, um, establishing facilities at East Coast ports. Uh, the one I covered most recently was Marmon Welcon contracted over in New York, and they're, they're going to be creating a, a big facility there. And we're also seeing um, kind of some talk about the need for this construction of uh, maritime vessels that can make interdomestic trips carrying materials. This is a requirement under the Federal Jones Act that they have to be uh, U.S. created ships um, that could do that. So that's going to be that's going to require some investment as well. I think that's included in that 100 billion dollar number that I mentioned before. And then the next big challenge is going to be transmission. You know, there's there's a lot of. Uh, talk about this. I think New York is kind of getting um, getting out ahead of this a little bit. The New York ISO, of course, is overseeing an RFP for three to six gigawatts of transmission capacity. But even there, I mean, the utility there estimates that they're going to need, you know, 15 to 25 gigawatts to meet the state's energy goals. So there's a lot of uh, activity that still needs to take place, a lot of investment that still needs to take place. But obviously, uh, you know, with these, these major project awards and contracts being uh, laid out here just in the last few days, um, you can see that the momentum is strong, and uh, I would expect that to continue uh, going into next year. Uh, great. Uh, thanks for that, Andrew. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the infrastructure build-out looks like here. Um, you got to the point about transmission. Um, obviously, we, we've talked in the past about how 
the federal infrastructure uh, bill, which did pass, uh, does allocate quite a bit of capital for uh, transmission upgrades. So that could potentially be uh, be a boon here, uh, if anything. Um, but there seems to be plenty of capital anyway, regardless. I'm kind of curious to myself, again, given the opportunity there, whether we can expect to see any more developers go into offshore winds, uh, since it's been kind of a tiny circle so far in the US. You know, granted, given they have extensive European experience in the form of Avangrid, Orsted, and Copenhagen, um, and then US wind kind of being the upstart um, here in the, the, the US. And that's kind of, um, you know, kind of all the folks we've seen. Um, and yet we have massive onshore wind developers in the US right now, people like Apex, for instance. Um, I'm just sort of wondering when we might see them uh, dip their their toes into the water, uh, yeah. quite literally. Yeah, no, I, I would second that. And I think what's kind of interesting is what's happening in areas that aren't necessarily super East Coast based, you know, and Bohm's plans to do mm-hmm. offshore lease sales through 2025. And, you know, they specifically pointed out beyond, you know, the, the New York bite and, and the Gulf of Maine and all that's in the Central Atlantic. But they they went to a place you know like like the Gulf of Mexico and you know right. California and Oregon. So I I have a feeling that those types of places you'll start to see a lot more competition from some of those names like you mentioned that you you typically see onshore, but you don't necessarily see um, uh, in the offshore space yet. You know, um, and and I think some of the challenges in those areas, uh, not so much the Gulf, but um, at least on the West Coast. You know, those are different technologies, so you could see different players just naturally be, because they're more specialized in floating wind as opposed to, to what's uh, prevalent on the East Coast. But um, but it is exciting. I mean, there's there was, you know, based on our reporting from November, um, Jillian, I, I remember a story you wrote on two pilot projects in Santa Barbara County, um, floating wind projects that, you know, were kind of looked at as the first real um, steel in the water, so to speak, um, opportunity for for California offshore wind and, and uh, how that that could be a precursor to further lease um, auctions later, you know, potentially in 2022 or 2023 um, in areas that are a bit further up the coast. Um, but it's it's all very exciting and um, yeah, really really interested in, in seeing what how it evolves in these places. And uh, to some of our earlier points, again, there's just so much capital out there that's now been, um, you know, put to work in these developer codes. So, you know, whether it be to energy storage, whether it be to offshore wind, uh, and then in, on into um, some of the other alternative technologies, which, again, you know, will not be a 2022 story, but will be a story at some point. Um, uh, I'm talking more about green hydrogen and carbon capture development that, you um, uh, and and even you know some of the more fungible things now like like biomass is that there there's capital to be deployed and motivated capital to put to work on these projects so um, kind of a bright future ahead there. Um, anyway, on that note, um, I thank you for listening in on the podcast. Um, wishing everybody a happy and healthy holidays, and uh, you know we'll be back for some more in January. So uh, thanks for listening in and thanks for joining today, guys. Thank you.